Hello and welcome to a Care Kitsu podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Tom Stangle as we discuss his modern approach to helping patients suffering from anxiety disorders. If you would like to learn how to leverage clinical neuroscience to help your patients, please visit CareKitsu.com. Hello and welcome to a Karakin Soup Podcast. Today we're going to be joined by Dr. Tom Stangle. Uh, Dr. Stangle is a uh, Karakin Soup faculty member. He's actively teaching for us. He is a uh, boarded chiropractic physician. He's also boarded as a diplomate from the Amer- American Chiropractic Neurology Board. Additionally, he's a fellow from the American College of Functional Neurology, so a well-studied and brilliant guy. Uh, he has a thriving and growing practice called Stangle Functional Neurology in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I'm excited to have him on the show. Dr. Stangle, can you hear me? I can hear you, Freddie. All right. Doc, I'm so happy to have you on the show because today we're going to be talking about anxiety disorders, which is something you've gotten a lot of attention for. I keep hearing, hey, Dr. Stangle is really good at this. He helps all these patients with anxiety disorders. I was so curious uh, because I, in the past, have been uh, frustrated by trying to help these patients, I was like, listen, if, if he has an approach that, uh, that is going to be new to me, I, I have to learn more. So, so here you go. Here you are. You're on the show. So thanks for coming on, man. <laughs> I appreciate you having me. So I'm glad if I can, if I can share something that can help people and with my experience in this, it'll be great. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. I'm sure people are going to really appreciate this. Um, so listen, the first question I have for you is, how did this develop in your office? Why did so many people email me saying you have to interview Dr. Stangle about this anxiety stuff? How, how did this come about? Yeah, yeah, it goes back to really the beginnings of my neurology practice. I mean, the one I'm in now is about seven or eight years old, but I worked in another office where I ran a neuro practice for a while. And I saw a lot of different types of neurological cases like we all do from dizziness mm-hmm. to Stakes to anything. And what I started to notice was that there was a, a pretty common pattern of anxiety in people that whether I was treating them primarily for that or it was a secondary issue. And I realized it was the most common thing that uh, from a symptom point of view that I saw in my office. So then I kind of tackled it as a more primary problem. And I did. And from there, it's just become a word of mouth element that we can you, we can take care of that problem a lot of times with people where they're maybe failing in other, other modalities to try to treat it. So you just saw that similarity over and over and over and kind of took it upon yourself to say, hey, I think I'm going to need to get good at this, huh? Yeah, for sure. No, it's like, because well, the reason is I felt like it was a barrier to getting these other problems better. So I wanted to find out why, you know, and then I realized that it wasn't just that it was anxiety, but because these same kind of anxiety systems have effects on mo- motor systems that descend out and we're trying to fix things like movement and all that, that it was one of those barriers. So I felt like it was a, not just another problem, but it was part of the base problem they had. And then it's turned out that many people have it as a primary problem that we treat now. Awesome. Well, listen, so before we start getting into like the neurophysiology or, you know, what, what you perceive as the neurophysiology of these anxiety disorders, um, unless the patient walks in and say, you know, Dr. Stango, Dr. Garcia, I, I suffer from anxiety, help me. Um, how do you, what are they going to say subjectively as to what they're feeling? Like, how do we know we should explore this? Um, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're going to they're going to tell you uh, any number of things. And sometimes they will say, hey, I've got anxiety. It'll just come out. And then you have to ask the question. And and the question is really this. Is it uh, just like as I meant, uh, 
just like we typically do with something like dizziness, we want to ask them what that means. So sometimes it's a cognitive anxiety. Sometimes it's a mental anxiety. Sometimes it's a physical one. So they'll start telling you about things like um, their rate, their thoughts are racing. They can't sleep at night. Um, they can't get certain thoughts out of their head or they become overly emotional to small triggers in their life. Um, they, uh, they're, you know, they might even cry without even feeling emotional or it can be a physical manifestation where they just feel like they're, they're tighter in their body. And then sometimes it's just anxiety attacks that they've been, they've been told they have. So that comes out through the history. And a lot of times, uh, either something I directly ask them or they just, it's just part of their telling me what's going on with them. So, so yeah, sometimes people say they'll like they'll feel physically antsy, you know, like they're kind of like jumping. Sure, you know? sure. And, and what they're telling you is that you know, to it just kind of a nice step back is that they're telling you they've got some sort of hyperkinetic response going on, and that's kind of the way I view these anxiety problems. They're really hyperkinetic movement disorders, but they're not always just a physical movement. It's the movement of their thoughts, their emotions, some of their autonomic responses. And so that's kind of the basis of how I go about it. Once I get into treatment is trying to kind of see it from that, that, that lens. Uh, well, this is cool. So let's go deeper. So, well, actually, before we go into the neurology of these disorders, traditionally in the, in the, for medical treatment, if somebody has an anxiety disorder, what type of treatment are they getting um, from our counterpart uh, physicians and clinicians out there? What, what else is being offered to these types of patients? Yeah, I mean, I, typically what I see is one of two things. And one, uh, probably more often they're in some sort of uh, – um, psychotherapy, psychiatry, um, behavioral type therapies to help them out with it. Mm -hmm. And also they may, they may be on antidepressants more often than not, and sometimes anti-anxiety type meds, but, uh, more often I see these antidepressants that are being prescribed because I, I guess they, they see effects from that to help them. So those are the two things that I see. Okay. Um, Cool. And there's some pros and cons to that. I know people have been helped by both. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you, you can't you can't poo on either one of those. It's just a matter of whether they're working or not. Yeah, um, I think not to interrupt, Freddie's, but I think there's a point where you look at what's appropriate for a person. So I actually work with a lot of psychologists. And so there's points where I know how to kind of place these people mm -hmm. into part. Um, that becomes a, a nice concurrent level of care at times too, you know, so um, where, you know, if there's a psychological component that needs to be dealt with and that should be held. Uh, dealt with by those professionals. So, and that's why I think sometimes it's such good and there's elements where maybe they can't control it and sometimes the meds are all right, but uh, more often than not, they just don't fix the problem. Sure, no, sure. I mean, it's, we, have to, we have to learn to play within the system and uh, yeah. and play appropriately. I mean, this is, it's supposed to be a team to get to get and keep people healthy. I mean, that's sure. just the way it sure. is. All right. Well, hey, let, let's get let's talk neuro, right? Let's put our neuro hats on and uh, and uh, kind of dive into it. So, from your perspective, right? I know you've done a lot of study on this because uh, you were telling me a little bit about it before. What are we really looking at in regards to the neurophysiology of these anxiety types of conditions? Can you give us? A, can you walk us through this so we can get a little bit of more of an understanding? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, more often than not, and of course in neurology, nothing's ever 100%, but more often than not, in the majority of the time, um, what I find is that they have a lot of uh, essentially wind up in more the right hemisphere than the than the left hemisphere. And I think there's some a couple of reasons for that. One, 
the uh, um, most of these people are suffering some problem. The suffering side of this and the more emotional side tends to be that right side. And I think that winds them up with that. It predisposes them to that problem, even if they're suffering a pain syndrome or a, a vestibular problem. So I always I see that more often than not. Also, um, invariably, you see certain elements of basal ganglia involvement in this because of the filtering of the cortex through there and the basal ganglia being kind of that um, up and down filter. And more often than not, you end up with these hyperkinetic mechanisms from it. And the last thing that I think it's important to kind of talk about, um, just as far as base problems and the anxiety, is that the, the salience network, which really involves the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate, has been found to be active in these people. And, and I think this contributes to the right um, windup in that um, it has a high connection to the ventral um attention systems which are um which are highly activated on the right side of the brain uh, as opposed to the left um that's based on imaging studies and things like that so i think that's part of that relationship why i see that pretty con- consistently okay hey so you said a couple of things in there and i want to i want to sure. uh, dive a little deeper you said basal ganglia now you know, the, we obviously know that the basal ganglia is involved in, in motor aspects, and that's where people a lot of a lot of people start thinking about it. They start thinking about movement disorders. Uh, so, it, it's sometimes people hear basal ganglia and they hear anxiety. They go, "Hold on, one second, really? Can you kind of explain how that happens a little bit more?" Yeah, I mean, uh, classically, the basal ganglia is look like you said is is looked at as a primary motor output to the musculoskeletal system, but it really has. Um, different, uh, I would say, layers to it that involve cognitive systems, emotional limbic systems. We know it's involved with eye motion and things like that. So it is, it basically, you know, allows us to, um, I think the best way to describe it is to filter up and down the appropriate responses uh, in the context of our world. I mean, that might get a little, little bit too esoteric there, but basically it lets us bring us up and down to appropriate responses for movement, for our emotions, for our thought processes. And um, so that is why that's why that's involved in that cognitive process as opposed to just a motor mechanism. Hmm. And then another thing you said is there was wind up. So what is what is a wind up? What does that look like? Yeah, it means that uh, an element of the brain is being is 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 too is more active than it, what its normal state should be. That can come from a number of different reasons. A lot of times, it's just a loss of inhibition. So, say you're just frontally depressed, you might start to see, uh, you know, increased activity in lower subcortical systems like the you know like even the mesencephalon or something like that, and um, and it starts to increase activity and then that can have effects elsewhere so if the mesencephalon is firing too high it has a powerful monosynaptic connections to the limbic system and it just primes them into these kinds of emotional responses that they might have as well so um so we see this wind up and 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 as they're experiencing this it's just where they they process it so like in the salience network they basically just it's an attention system that gives a little more weight to the attention of the world and what ends up happening is it's just firing all the time and it's just from their experience of their life and so you've got things not being inhibited and you've got things working hard and that ultimately turns into this more active side of the brain in different areas and uh that leads to uh, uh this hyperkinetic state hmm. okay got it so now, so i'm gonna keep going down the road here because i just love the journey of all this all comes together so now sure. we're talking about hyperkinetic mistakes you kind of broke down the basal ganglia and the salience network aspects um and you mentioned the anterior cingulate and the anterior insula as well 
in an examination, so I want to kind of get into your exam uh, in well, your office. Well, how are you going about to see all these things? How, how does this manifest during a physical and neuro exam? Can you yeah, tell you us know, about I, your exam, I guess? I yeah, hear exactly. It. Yeah, you know, listen, I'm a little product of where, where I started in, in the neurology program. And so I, I learned from some of the very best people, and I'm kind of hardwired to what, what I do. But I think it serves me in this process in that I do a pretty – comprehensive exam, uh, history initially on these people. So aside from going through their, 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 um, uh, from going through their primary complaints and kind of OPQRST type stuff, mm-hmm. um, I always do a review in that through that whole neuraxis. And I learned that from Dr. Carrick, you know, and so what that does is it allows me to, um, come ask if they don't tell me that they're feeling those things that you mentioned before, like they feel antsy or whatever, I will get it in their history. And so now I actively look for it because I see it so much. Um, and I'll ask questions like, do you, um, are you more irritable? Um, do you notice any movements in your body or jerkiness that might indicate the basal ganglia issue? Are you more attentive to things than you should be? Um, so that comes out in the history part. And once I do the history, I do a pretty comprehensive exam uh, and what I'll see a lot of times, and I'll just give you examples of like uh, things that in that kind of right brainy wind up and also some of the basal ganglia stuff you would see. But you'll often see in these people, they'll have spontaneity of movement, especially in their face and a lot of times in the left lower side of their face um, from the basal ganglia component, maybe in their arms or legs. Um, we do, you know, gait evaluation and just keeping it very simple, just looking at arm swing they'll oftentimes, more often than not, they'll be more active on the left side because their right brain's kind of wound up. And, and then they'll be, they'll also at the same time, because the right brain is so wound up, the left side is, is essentially tonically inhibited from the corpus callosum. The right side of their body will not be moving much at all. And it's just a, a very consistent pattern that I see in this. And then I'll, just a lot of other motor aspects. They'll be a little slower with their their piano type movements in their hands, maybe they're a little slower on finger tap, that type of thing um, on one side or the other. But there's a consistency there that I see that indicates that wind up and also that right brain type of mechanism. That was beautiful. So one of the things that I heard there is, the, you know, that on gait examination, you may see the increase in that left arm swing and which yep. will make it look like a decrease in an arm swing on the right side. And I had a pause there because, uh, I, you know, I obviously teach for the Karak Institute as well. And that's one of those things where as you educate these scholars who show up month after month to learn neurology, we always like to attack that decreased side being like, oh, mm. hey, we need an increased function, right? So if we see like a decreased right arm swing, we're going, all right, maybe there's a, a, a left frontal lobe aspect that we need to increase the function of. But from what you're saying is, hey, because of this windup, it's, it's not that there's a decrease of function in the left side. It's that overactivity of function on the right side, which makes it look decreased on the yeah. right side of your body from the right yeah, side absolutely. of the brain. Absolutely. You're, you're pro- and I can tell you, when we're just speaking about this kind of uh, hyperkinetic anxiety, mm-hmm. that most of the time the, the problem is is not the, the deficient side, and we were classically taught that, but you know, I can probably a lot of docs will speak to this, but you can try to make drive that left brain all you want, but if it's being tonically inhibited, it won't work very well. Mm-hmm. And so the first order of business for me in treating that is to try to get that little bit of a wind down a little bit on that hyperkinetic part. And oftentimes that starts to release the left side out where I can start to use or the left brain. I can start to use it more to then tonic then, then, then to start to inhibit back over to that right side. But you're right. We kind of look at that deficient side and go, that's the problem. In in these cases, I'm, I would it would be my 
and, and these are whole brain problems. So even though we're talking right and left, I never look at it like that. It's just that sure. we see this balance it's, issue. But what I'm it's talking about. It's just an about, easier way to describe it, right? Yeah, I mean, we were but, trying to simplify complicated but, networks. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that that basically your, 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 your problematic side is definitely the wind up for a lot of reasons. And that's it for that issue. So you've got to deal with that to, in order to get that, to get the balance you want in the brain as a whole. And you'll do a lot of chasing around trying to get that left side to come up if you don't bring the right side down. And that's kind of the way I see it more often than not. Right. No, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, that is, that's, it's, uh, you know, about a third of the way the program in, we start shifting them away from thinking, you know, only to attack that decreased aspect and suddenly go, hey, listen, another way to look at it is that it's not decreased brain function on one side, it's overactivity on the other side. And suddenly people yeah. kind of go, whoa, it, hey, I this think is that brings up a good point, Freddie's too, about, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And basically, you know, there, it's, it's interesting, the system's so complex that we know that it's not really completely hemispheristic, yet we see lots of hem or hemispheristic findings for, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. And so that makes it clinical for us to then do, I think, be a very effective in the way that we approach things. Sure. No, that's, that's beautiful. I love that explanation. Hey, so let's jump into treatment. I mean, what do you, you know, and I appreciate you even letting me ask, uh, because I know this is kind of like some of your magic recipe while you're so successful, but can you share with us what you're doing uh, in your approach to help these patients suffering from these anxiety disorders? What, what do you got going on? Yeah, you know, like I said, I think that I see these kind of up through the lens of hyperkinesis most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I want to get that initial wind down to come in. And what I was trying to figure out early on with this was, um, you know, how do you create activation in, in an appropriate way to get the response when, in fact, most of this actually drives the that motor response more? Because most of our sensory mechanisms eventually, in my opinion or well, not even opinion, but my, what I see is that it, they, they fire through like the mesencephalon up through the whole tegmental system. And, and there's, there's this potential for you to, to wind it up more. So I sought out a way to try to figure out how to get to, to some descending inhibition, the prefrontal system without overdriving that, um, over that, uh, overdriving the, um, the mesencephalon. And there's really only one sensory system that does that. And that's the sense of very fine touch and running through the dorsal columns, essentially. They don't have a large contribution to that. So I actually started, this was kind of a, a takeoff from some of the primitive reflex stuff we've learned, but I, I, I realized that it worked. And I said, well, why does that work? And it must be, you know, because there's a lot of uh, like touch stuff to it. So I use a, a touch mechanism where I will and it seems, and this has to be done in the right context, but just right in the beginning, the first day or two, you know, I'll have people go home and, and with a spouse or whatever, and they'll do like a kind of a very fine fingertip, full body touch. And the reason I do full body is because that right brain has a map of both sides of the body, and I like to attack that. Um, and then they'll do that for four or five minutes, three times a day. And it almost always gives us that initial wind down, meaning I'll start to see changes in that, uh, in that, uh, and some of those findings, like the, the very active pupil, the spontaneity of movement, the movements start to change. They start to open up their arm swing a little bit. And that tells me then that I can start to do more motor-based type therapies that we all do um, and also go after that left brain to create inhibition from that side as well. And that'll turn into other types of therapies, uh, whether it's vestibular or eye therapies or certain types of peripheral stretch mechanisms, uh, depending on what their findings are. 
Awesome. Fascinating. So your first goal is to get that hyperkinesis to come down. And I heard uh, the fine touch mechanism was the way you did that. And actually, I was kind of surprised you do it over the whole body. But it makes a lot of sense because you know that the right side of the brain has that dual the, the map of both sides. So you're kind of playing yeah. into that. You're still, even though you're doing the whole body, you're still targeting uh, you're, you're still hitting the target, I guess. Is what yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I think this is a good lesson for everybody who are using the program. And Professor Carrick refers to it all the time. One, put it to the test. But everything's in the context of your because we're obviously hitting more things than what we think. But, you know, based on your outcome assessment and you see these things, you know, you're getting close to the target. And so that is what that target is. And it seems to work most of the time. I have some other theories on why that works, but that's kind of the base reason why that seems to work um, on people. And it's very effective. I mean, it's, it's not always, but man, it's, it's very effective. And sometimes I, I tell the patients, you know, it seems silly. And sometimes even docs are like, kind of like, well, why, why would you do something that isn't very complex like that? And I said, well, if you think about what's going on, it actually makes more sense than doing other things first. And it's a great way to get to those things that you want to do that are more complex that might fix them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So, and you said on the fine touch one, I'm going to go back to use it as that kind of way to almost like you're getting them going, right? I feel like you're building momentum. So after you yeah. use that technique, Absolutely. which is interesting. Uh, you talked about some motor motor based therapies and other and you, what what else do you what other tools what other techniques you're using yeah, in the treatment? I mean, side? Uh, I think this is the next thing that I see. Um, this is also some something that I see quite a bit in here, and I, I didn't mention this before, but I think it'll segue well into what we're talking about because these people invariably have a motor problem. Um, and you see it in their gait and other things, it does tax the VOR a bit. And so um, one of the things you'll see is you'll see these otolithic type of um, uh, activation patterns where they're they're essentially become more uh, uh, tonic in their muscles, and that will contribute more back into the to to the anxiety issue because they've got more tone in the extremities, and that creates uh, affrontation back through cerebellum to mesencephalon. That the next thing a lot of times they'll do is go into what what, what essentially is kind of a very light PNF type stretch to start to bring down the sensitivity of that system mm-hmm. and reduce that feedback, and then that'll lead me up into um, probably more. Uh, uh, a brainstem and cortical type things that are vis- either vestibular based or eye movement based, and then eventually some cognitive types of things as well. Awesome. So I'm hearing, all right, you got the fine touch trick, uh, and then you start going more motor. You start complex movements are in there. I heard vision therapy, vestibular mm-hmm. rehab, and then mm-hmm. cognitive therapies. Uh, w- tell me more about that. What 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 do we got going yeah. on there? So this is uh, this is probably where I may uh, have sent, kind of have taken this beyond where most of the uh, chiropractic or functional neurologists have to a degree. Um, you know, I felt like I was dealing with human beings here. And when you look at and what that meant was is that, man, with this prefrontal system is so highly connected. It's so different than all the beasts of the fields, as, as Dr. Carrick would talk about. There's an there there is if you don't deal with that problem. Um, of what their what of their ability to think and how they're processing in that deal, in that area. A lot of times that's where you come up short in helping anxiety people. Mm-hmm. So I had a situation not long, you know, a few years ago where I had a lot of these people and um, and I needed to do better. And I was doing well with them and I started studying deeper into the kind of prefrontal systems and these other areas that kind of process our cognition and emotions. And I realized that you just can't send them all off to psychology and things like that. So, but I didn't want to cross the line into psychology. So I just got on my whiteboard and I said, well, if I did this kind of cognitive thing, 
what would it happen in the brain? And as long as I can keep it in a brain-based mechanism, then I feel like I'm not crossing that line. But it's a very effective way to use different, and I've got probably a number of different techniques that I've developed or adapted to deal with that cognitive side of it, because that's going to have to happen at, in the end. What I find is you're, if you're not going to, in order to get that final component, you've got to work with that system, and you kind of have to know how to do it. So I've just developed a lot of those cognitive types. Dr. Stangle, like, I got to ask, are you, are you, can yeah. you give us an example? I yeah. got to hear, man, you're piquing my interest. Yeah, I'm going to give you two examples, um, and cool. these are a little more advanced. I have some, uh, one of them is actually a, uh, um, is a, uh, is an adaptation from a hypnosis technique taught in the FNOR program when it was with the Carrick Institute. And they basically use this technique to, um, to, uh, desensitize the, uh, the, the, basically the response to pain they, they would see in post-surgical patients. And I thought, well, this would be a great way to, um, to, uh, this would be a great way to change the brain if we just tweak the exercise a little bit more and, and get that hyperkinetic mechanism to come down. And so I adapted that that to that to that program. And it's just like a five step deal deal that they created, and it's a really effective one at at getting them down, getting them to come down. It deals with the balance of the central executive and the um, default mode networks, and essentially it creates kind of an internal focus. Where in their, their and they always use the references, but the references showed that this increase in default mode also shuts off like this central executive network, which is a highly attentive system. So that's a good way to start shutting them down is to use that technique. The second thing, this came out of a of a a, a uh, an article on basically um, kind of genius moments, and that means. Uh, when people are free and they're really flowing in their thoughts and mm-hmm. they're not so attentive to a single thing, like you might be in an anxiety situation or you're overly focused, they found that the medial orbital system was uh, became active and the dorsal lateral system um, became le- less active. And so what was important about that to me, it wasn't that they gave me the idea of how to do this, but what I realized from the studies I have and um, there's a really good book called The Neurobiology of the Prefrontal Cortex that everybody should get and read. Um, but basic that an orbital system is a very high resolution sensory processor. It takes all of our senses, but it's not sensory for sensory base, like just touch to do this. It's not um, it's not just smell or anything else like that. It's the appreciation really of the sensory mech- uh, the sensory world that you're that you're. Uh, operating in. So it could be as something as simple as, you know, to, you know, somebody, you know, relaxes because they like dark chocolate, you know, probably most of the time they'll take their piece of chocolate and put it in their mouth. And, um, they'll, what they'll do is just, then they'll move on in the world. They're right back doing their normal thing. We'll, we'll have them stop and we'll create elements where they, they create appreciation in that sensory world, whether it's visual, auditory, um, taste, smell, and it's a really powerful way to shut off that really overactive system. It works pretty well. So it's just something I developed off that little article, you know, and the knowledge I already had. This is fascinating. So I don't, I don't know if I've ever said this before. So I'm actually hypnotherapy certified. I've, when I learned, uh, I went to California and started uh, studying hypnosis because I love all things brain. I can't help it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a nerd. And uh, cool. so I learned hypnosis uh, while <clears throat> having people with QEG, QEG sensors on their on their uh, skull. So we can actually sure. watch their brain activity change, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that's that's awesome. I love your applic- your application. 
Um, yeah, and it's really what makes it like more brain based, at least the way I did it. I, I just adapted a couple things that they showed us there, mm-hmm. but I just give them that's another home exercise. And what they do is that I'll have them do this like almost shut down all the rest of their therapy in that situation because I don't want that sensory mechanism kind of coming in and, and messing with something that's designed to kind of uh, make them become more internally focused. And so I took that, and if they do this five or six times a day, and it's a, probably I turned it into about a five minute exercise that um, then that repetition, you know, that temporal mechanism, some spatial stuff in there, they basically then start to change that brain over a very short period of time. And, you know, hey, you know, it's funny, that second exercise kind of reminds me of um, sometimes people, you'll see people kind of posting about this on social media. They're talking about gratitude and appreciation, almost yeah. like you're having people appreciate the things that they normally wouldn't appreciate that, that yeah. and kind of creating a neuroplasticity in that positive direction away from what? those Oh, and it does, and it's it's funny, and I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but it really is makes a lot of sense, um, because when you look at this this anxiety thing, and we say the salience network is cranked up, and this is a basically an, an, you're tending to things a little closer than what you should. Um, but what happens is that with that kind of positive element that you put in in this element is that you shut off that um, overly reactive, uh, even the frontal, that dorsal lateral system. And what happens is they end up, it's just a physiological response. And one of the things in the past when we worked with like even ADHD kids, there was once a concept because the left right side of the brain was brain was more considered to be more negative, like to give it like the cognitive therapy should be have more of a negative attribution. But at one of our conferences in the past, uh, I remember was Joe Sargent said, listen, we found that these kids all do better when you give them that positive reinforcement. But that's probably the reason why. So, I mean, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, thing that it would be that way, but it's very physiological. Well, fascinating. Hey, I'm going to ask you another question here. We'll keep going. Um, yeah. One of the reasons I think people are frustrated uh, by working with anxiety patients or p- patients suffering from these disorders is they kind of, um, until you It'll kind of come and go, right? Like you, you do well with it, you think you got it, and then you know, forty-five days later, the patient comes in. Oh, it's back. Um, how do how do you have you solved that aspect? What do you do to keep these disorders from coming back for your patients? Yeah, I think you have to look at their their uh, their treatment and obviously different phases. And I think one thing is that I mean, you've got to really say. What are you going to give them once you're done with your active treatment to continue the process of building positive plasticity? These are highly learned systems, meaning that they're plastic, they're, they're usually limbic. You know those are the most powerful systems there are, and it's why we are driven to, you know, addictions to procreate you name it so small triggers can pull them back into it whether it's a mental thing sometimes it's just a physical they turn their head and they'll do it so you've got to give them things to continue to work on so that they create those long-term changes and what I found what I felt like was going on once we get that work done and I see this balance in the brain and things seem to be working better I want to make that especially that right brain but the whole brain more just as efficient as it can be, meaning that, you know, our purpose, and Dr. Carrick talks about it all the time, is where we at in space and the space around us and all that. But part of that is the representation of our body. And so I start to orient them towards more whole body-based types of exercises that I think creates an efficiency. And obviously, there's some focusness, uh, things like Tai Chi, 
Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're very good for that. And it's not the only exercise. I've just found that one to be the most effective. And as they do that, what I find over time afterwards is when they come back and they follow up is I see that there's continued wind down, so to speak. They're less kinetic. They're more efficient. We see it in their movements. There's more differentiation in their movements when they move, like their arms swing, their body. And then we start looking at their hips and back and it all just looks a lot more efficient. And then, um, if, if you are motor impaired like that, you're always going to, your brain has to attend more to things because it can't, it can't grab that map. But the, as the maps become more organized of the body and the space around them, it doesn't have to create that attention. And so those same attentive systems that are really active in anxiety inherently start to shut down and you become more balanced between all these different networks. And that's what I try to do with them long term. And if they do do that, it almost always creates the right recipe for a, a permanent fix. Dr. Singer, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to re-listen to this podcast just to listen to that last speech. That was great. You're, you're the man. Dr. Stingle, listen, I got to say thank you very, very much for coming out to the show and sharing your expertise in how you help patients who are suffering from anxiety disorders. If any of our scholars wanted to get a hold of you or maybe make a referral to you so you could help one of their patients, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, best way to look is at my website. It's neurochat.com. That's uh, neuro and chat with two T's because I live in Chattanooga. And it's got a it's got a, an email connection in there. It's got my uh, my personal email. I'm happy to talk to any of our colleagues. I do that all the time. I think that's a lot of fun to just be helpful to other docs in, in cases like this. Well, you're about to help a lot of docs who, who have taken the time to uh, listen to this podcast. So again, thank you very, very much. Very appreciative. I'll see you at the next class you're teaching or the next course that you take with us. We appreciate you, Dr. Stangle, and we'll catch you next time. Appreciate it, Freddie. It's been a been a ton of fun. Love to do it again. You got it, my friend. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.